What Lewis misses from a Jewish perspective is that when it comes to the egregiously wicked, whose evil is a threat to all that is good, then love of these awful evildoers is for Judaism itself a reflection of a lack of compassion, detracting from our own battle against evil. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 207, David and the Punishment of the Egregiously Evil. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis argues that certain chapters in this biblical book are distinctly Jewish and are, in his view, distinctly sinful. C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, In some of the Psalms, the spirit of hatred which strikes us in the face is like the heat from a furnace mouth, end quote. And Lewis adds, quote, The hatred is there, festering, gloating, undisguised, and also we should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved it, or worse still, used it to justify similar passions in ourselves, end quote. Lewis here is referring to the Psalms that hope for the destruction of the very wicked, of the egregiously evil. Lewis correctly interprets these Psalms as reflecting not baseless anger or hatred, but rather moral indignation at the egregiously evil. He further writes, quote, If the Jews cursed more bitterly than the pagans, this was, I think, at least in part because they took right and wrong more seriously. For if we look at their railings, we find they are usually angry not simply because these things have been done to them, but because these things are manifestly wrong, are hateful to God as well as to the victim, end quote. In this last point, Lewis is correct. The Psalms are directed against the egregiously evil. But that, in Lewis's view, does not excuse the Jews. Lewis refuses to see this as laudable. Instead, he writes, quote, The Jews sinned in this matter worse than the pagans, not because they were further from God, but because they were nearer to him. End quote. These are Lewis's words. For Lewis, these Psalms are an embodiment of Jewish sin. Now, obviously, I reject Lewis's understanding of these Psalms, both doctrinally and philosophically. Doctrinally, because I believe that the words of Scripture, such as those of the Psalms, are divinely inspired and can never be described as wicked or sinful. But there is a larger philosophical point to be made here as well, and that is that C.S. Lewis, for all his literary greatness and exegetical ability, failed here in his reflections on the Psalms to understand that these passages are part and parcel of the moral worldview of the Hebrew Bible, of its complex understanding of the human being, as created by God Almighty. Throughout the Psalms, David prays for the downfall of the very wicked. One example is the end of Psalm 36. Let not the hand of the wicked remove me. There are the workers of iniquity fallen. They are cast down and shall not be able to rise. David, in the next Psalm, expresses similar sentiments. Fret not thyself because of evildoers. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Then there is Psalm 92. A brutish man knoweth not, neither doth a fool understand this. When the wicked spring as the grass and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. But thou, Lord, art most high forevermore. For lo, thine enemies, O Lord, for lo, thine enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. In Psalm 58, speaking of terrible evildoers, David says, Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. Break out the great teeth of the young lions, O Lord. Let them melt away as waters which run continually. And when he bendeth his bow to shoot his arrows, let them be as cut in pieces. And David adds, The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance, by which he means the vengeance against the utterly evil. What David is expressing here in his emotion is profound and must be understood. Let us begin by pondering human nature. 
Human beings have, and we believe have been given by God, the capacity for expressing a variety of emotions. Joy and sadness, love, mercy, compassion, but also the capacity for anger, desire, and even hate. What are we to make of these latter aspects of human nature? For Judaism, every emotion and human capacity has its place because it was placed there by God. God does not create evil. We may choose to sinfully misapply them, but they are there for a purpose. Take, for example, the desire for material gain. Left unchecked, unchanneled, it can indeed be a source of wickedness. But Judaism does not counsel asceticism and believes that the desire for material advancement, balanced by charity and compassion, can lead to great things. In his article, Markets and Morals, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs put it this way, quote, The great philosophical advocates of the market, Bernard Mandeville, David Hume, and Adam Smith, were struck by a phenomenon that many considered to be scandalous and amoral. This was their discovery that the market produced benefits to all through a series of actions and transactions that were essentially self-interested in their motivation. As Adam Smith bluntly put it, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. Within the system of free trade, as Smith put it most famously, the individual intends only his own gain, and he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. This fact, that markets and their associated institutions tend to work on the basis not of altruism but of somewhat earthier motives, has always led to a high-minded disdain for everything suggested by the word commercial. Not so within Judaism. Long before Mandeville and Smith, Judaism has accepted the proposition that the greatest advances are often brought about through quite unspiritual drives. I saw, says the author of Ecclesiastes, that all labor and all achievement springs from man's envy of his neighbor. End quote. These were Rabbi Sachs' words, and I would put it slightly differently, which is that every drive and emotion given by God can be spiritually sanctified with proper direction. Thus, the meaning of the rabbi's description of the study hall in a maxim cited by Rabbi Sachs, Kinat Sofrim the envy of scholars increaseth wisdom. Every emotion, drive, desire has its place and time. One will not suffice for all times. As I often say, Judaism disagrees with a the theological group known as the Beatles when they uttered their famous maxim, all you need is love. And Judaism also disagrees with the Beatles' very different maxim, that love is all you need. Every emotion has its place. This point is made not only in the Psalms, but throughout the Hebrew Bible. Thus, most famously, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. So Ecclesiastes tells us, and it is with this in mind that we can approach the anger and hatred in the Psalms that is directed toward the very wicked. The anti-Semitic trope depicting Jews as lacking compassion has a horrible history. One thinks of Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice depicting Shylock hellbent on vengeance. This is, of course, a calumny. Indeed, it was biblical monotheistic Judaism that gave the scriptural concepts of love, mercy, and compassion to the world. C.S. Lewis understands this. And, of course, the Hebrew Bible also gave the world the notion of repentance. The Psalms are filled with David's own 
expressions of contrition, highlighting that in general God seeks the repentance of those that sin, not their destruction. What Lewis misses from a Jewish perspective is that when it comes to the egregiously wicked, whose evil is a threat to all that is good, then love of these awful evildoers is for Judaism itself a reflection of a lack of compassion, detracting from our own battle against evil. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, in a lecture on the Jewish approach to emotions, said the following, quote, How can we speak of a variety of responses if the richness of emotional life is dispensed with for the sake of the deity of love? Of course, Rabbi Soloveitchik continued, love is a great and noble emotion, fostering the social spirit and elevating man. But not always is the loving person capable of meeting the challenge of harsh realities. In certain situations, Rabbi Soloveitchik continued, a disjunctive emotion such as anger or indignation may become the motivating force for noble and valuable actions. And Rabbi Soloveitchik further writes, As a rule, Judaism has always tried to maintain a balance between conflicting emotions and to accept the totality of the human emotional experience. We must not say, Rabbi Soloveitchik wrote, that love is an absolutely noble feeling, while anger is always a base emotion. Their worth and ethical connotation depend upon the object at which these intentional acts aim and upon historical circumstances. End quote. And then Rabbi Soloveitchik added, quote, With regard to a movement such as Nazism or certain aspects of communism, the absence of a hatred that dictates action is just as mean and despicable as an unwarranted hatred. The fight against evil must be suffused with disjunctive emotions. End quote. So Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik wrote, One thinks here of the anecdote describing a meeting between Truman and Churchill, where the president showed the prime minister the presidential seal, complete with an eagle clutching arrows in one claw and olive branches in the other. The arrows represent the capacity for war, the olive branches a desire for peace. Truman, according to the story, mentioned that the seal had once featured the eagle looking toward the arrows, but that now the head had been permanently portrayed turning toward the olive branches, reflecting a preference for peace. According to the anecdote, Churchill replied, something like, Mr. President, I would recommend that the eagle's head be placed on a swivel so that it could be turned toward whichever the times demand. To everything there is a season, says the Bible, to every emotion, to every human capacity endowed by God. Or as Rabbi Soloveitchik also put it, quote, it is not always possible to fight entrenched wrong, corruption, and abuse if only love and all the attendant emotions such as humility, meekness, and tolerance are in control of human action. And he further adds, there is need for active opposition which can be initiated only through righteous anger, hate, and detestation of everything that is ugly, end quote. Judaism, as we mentioned, stresses free will and believes that evildoers chose freely. We are, of course, all fallible. We have all sinned, and God desires repentance. But when it comes to absolutely awful acts, we believe that wickedness was freely chosen and that a desire to see the very wicked punished can drive the fight against evil and is bound up in the belief in a just and providential God. Thus, Psalm 58, the righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. And the psalm explains why. So that a man shall say, Verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily he is a God that judgeth. In the earth. C.S. Lewis, brilliant though he was, missed, I believe, the complexity of the psalm's moral vision when it came to human nature. We have quoted the insight of the writer Thomas Cahill that David, in his psalms, reflects the interiority and complexity of the human being. As Cahill put it, quote, 
Prior to the humanist autobiographies of the Renaissance, we can count only a few isolated instances of this use of I to mean the interior self. But David's psalms are full of eyes, the eye of repentance, the eye of anger and vengeance, the eye of self-pity and self-doubt, the eye of despair, the eye of delight, and the eye of ecstasy. The psalms are a treasure trove of personal emotions and a unique early roadmap to the inner spirit, previously mute of ancient humanity. Whereas the historian must normally guess at the emotions of his subjects from incomplete or indirect evidence, David's psalms reassure us that 3,000 years ago people laughed and cried just as we do, bled and cursed, danced and leapt, that our whole repertoire of emotions was theirs, end quote. This is true. But even more importantly, what David shows is how every emotion can be channeled, elevated, sanctified, and how we can thereby become the human beings that God has called us to be. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.